Hello, I'm Kate Jabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Russia's military advance into Ukraine's terrain continues at a snail's pace. Both sides are talking of first progress in peace talks, but Russia's relentless bombardment continues, hitting homes and shelters. This is war. Behind me, building where civilians were killed by the Russian rocket, and this is not just the first and not the last. It doesn't matter who you are on the Ukrainian soil now. A missile strike just a few miles from Poland's border has renewed warnings about the risk of the war spilling into NATO territory. We'll join an air patrol trying to deter any spread. As we slow down to refueling speed, we've just effectively offered them to call when they're ready for fuel. The two Typhoon fast jets are right alongside this Voyager aircraft, which is essentially a flying petrol station. And as Berlin orders a fleet of F-35s, we ask if President Putin has driven a seismic shift in German thinking. I spent most of my adult life looking at a Germany that was trying to overcome a history of having been a military power. After three weeks at war, Russia and Ukraine have both offered just a glimmer of hope for a diplomatic exit. Ukraine's president says negotiations have become more realistic, while Russian's foreign minister says there is some hope for compromise. But that compromise, according to the Kremlin, involves Ukraine pledging not to join NATO. And the fighting goes on. For Ukrainians, the suffering only gets worse, under bombardment and caught in gunfights. Just a few miles from the Polish border on NATO's doorstep, a Russian missile strike on a Ukrainian military base killed 35 people. But this rescue operation in the capital, Kyiv, was at an apartment block, hit by an artillery shell nowhere near any possible military target. We're fighting not just our, for our city, we're fighting right now for our principles. I don't want to leave my city, I don't want to leave my country. If it will need be, I will uh, take a gun and go to fight and kill Russians. Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark has been tracking the movement of Russia's forces since the invasion. Uh, Michael, why has Russia taken so little ground in the last week? Is it a tactical decision or problems? Well, we think it's more problems than a tactical decision, although there is some uh, tactical movement now happening. But the Russians have certainly come up against lots of issues. Their, their logistics train is more or less broken down. They're having to uh, improvise now for logistics. Their military forces turn out to be really quite badly organised. Part, part of the, the biggest issue, apart from the, the whole thing that they started with, that they're trying to do something they haven't, haven't got enough troops to do, was that the troops themselves didn't know until the day before that they were actually going to go into combat rather than go back home after an exercise. And that includes senior commanders, didn't know until 24 hours before. And no military in the world, not the British, not the American military, could cope with that if they had to work out the logistics between uh, neighbouring forces al along the front line, as it were, which when they hadn't expected to do it. And so they're coming up with all of the, um, the classic problems of a military that wasn't battle-ready in the first place, wasn't properly prepared, and is now finding that they've taken on a task which they really can't accomplish. That's where they are. So what has changed in the last week? 
Well, there are three lines of advance, and one of them is worth looking at. I mean, one line of advance is towards the capital, Kiev, and Kiev is not surrounded. We thought it would be by now, but it isn't. The, the Russian forces are on the northeast and the northwest, but they're now getting within howitzer range, which means that they could bring up their howitzer artillery, 15, 18 miles or so, and really bombard the capital if they choose to. So there's, that is one issue. The second issue is that they're stalled in front of Odessa, but when I say in front of Odessa, they're still 80 miles away. They're fighting at Mikolaev. But the third front is the one where there may be some movement, where they're trying to, to link up the forces in the southeast of the country with the forces in the northeast of the country. And this is where some of their forces are better. And if they can link up, as it were, from the north and the south, they're trying to encircle the mm. Ukrainian forces who are fighting to their east. So if those Ukrainian forces are encircled or if they become likely to be encircled, they have the decision to make whether to move westwards and effectively give up that whole area along the Russian border or try and fight an encirclement action. So that's where the next focus of fighting will be, but it is moving at a, a, at a very slow pace. Yes, slow, and both sides are taking hits to their military capabilities. Have those losses shifted the balance at all? Uh, not in the short term. Both sides have lost about, we reckon, about 10% of their military capacity. And, of course, that matters more to the Ukrainians than the Russians. However, there's an interesting problem here that the Russians are running out of troops much more quickly, in a way, than the Ukrainians. And the reason for that is the, the Russians are now calling up troops. They're bringing troops from Georgia. And we'll see what happens in Georgia when the Russians move out. That might be interesting. Mm. They're bringing troops from the Pacific Fleet. They're bringing troops from the Far East. And they're trying to recruit some of these mercenary groups from Syria and, and Africa. So they're, they're running short of troops. The Ukrainians, of course, have a much smaller army. But in a way, they have the whole population to fall back on. So in a funny sort of way, the Ukrainians will have greater longevity of their forces. They'll have more backup than the Russians if this war goes to a second and third stage. So although it will be brutal and it's extremely unpleasant to watch, the Ukrainians are getting into a stronger, longer-term position than the Russians. Well, Vladimir Putin's made clear his aims aren't just keeping Ukraine out of NATO, but getting the alliance to shrink and pull back in Eastern Europe. It's backfired. We are reinforcing our collective defence. Hundreds of thousands of troops uh, on uh, heightened alert. 100,000 U.S. troops in Europe, and then uh, 40,000 troops under NATO, direct NATO command, mostly in the eastern part of the alliance. NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg has called an emergency summit of prime ministers and presidents, which will discuss a reset of collective defence. But members have already started spending and doing more. NATO's reinforcements and operations are designed to prevent contagion, the possible spread of conflict from Ukraine. The UK, for example, has doubled its troop numbers in Estonia in a matter of weeks. To do that, it's had to bring a big deployment forward and extend the tours of those already there. Simon Newton is in Estonia for BFBS SITREP. Well, it's a fairly sizable footprint, really, here in Estonia, a total of uh, 1,750 personnel. If you remember back at the end of February, we saw the 1st Battalion of the Royal Welsh arrive here from Senelago in Germany. They're an armoured infantry battalion. They effectively drove 1,000 miles across uh, Eastern Europe, bringing around 850 uh, personnel with them, uh, along with Challenger tanks uh, and warriors. And there's now about 24 Challenger tanks 
here uh, in Estonia and uh, 48 warrior uh, infantry fighting vehicles as well. Now, the Royal Welsh are effectively taking over from the Royal Tank Regiment. There's been a bit of an overlap because of what's going on in Ukraine. This Friday coming up, there'll be the official handover of the lead battle group role, if you like, for the enhanced war presence, NATO's enhanced war presence here in Estonia from the Royal Tank Regiment to one Royal Welsh. And they will then effectively take on that lead role. But the Royal Tank Regiment are staying on, aren't they? They are, yes. So they're going to um, stay here effectively outside of that EFP umbrella. They will stay in Estonia doing other things, maintaining their presence here uh, in the country. I should also say that there's also 200 Danish troops joining that battle group and also a company of French armour, we understand, are also coming. Uh, And we obviously heard some talk a while ago about Apaches being sent to Eastern Europe. We don't know quite when or where they're going to be going. But in terms of timescale, as you'd expect, given what's going on in Ukraine, it's been left pretty much open-ended. So the word I had today when I asked that very question was that it's under review. Well, military activity in NATO airspace has also increased dramatically. Extra RAF jets and refuelling planes have been policing skies close to alliance borders with Ukraine and Russia. BFBS sitreps Sean Grezchek joined a patrol flying from RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus. Right, it's uh, 6.50am. I'm at RAF Akrotiri. I'm just looking towards the runway where there is an RAF Voyager being prepared. There'll be two fast jets, two typhoons flying on the NATO air policing mission from here. And I'll be on the Voyager as they refuel them mid-air. It's going to be a long few hours. Just about to head into a briefing to find out what's in store. Right, I'm just stepping on board. It's about quarter to eight in the morning. It won't be too long before we take off. It's rather strange in that uh, I'm the only passenger on board apart from the crew. We don't know precisely where we're going to be going. I think it's going to be over Romanian airspace. For the last two weeks, uh, voyagers and typhoons have been sent from RAF Akrotiri on these sorts of missions. And we're really just going to get an insight now into what it's like. So it's about 20 past nine. We've been in the air for more than an hour now. And the two Typhoon fast jets are right alongside this Voyager aircraft, which is essentially a flying petrol station. Yeah, so as we slow down to refueling speed and we've just effectively offered them to call when they're ready for fuel, which will probably in about uh, the next few minutes. And they've just refueled them. It's really impressive to watch. So refueling the fast jets, throughout uh, this sortie is is incredibly important because obviously they need to keep getting topped up on fuel in order to reach Romanian airspace and then conduct the air policing. So we'll see this happen a few times throughout the flight whenever they need to get topped up on fuel. So the Typhoons have just returned from their sortie over Romanian airspace. We are about 30 miles away from the border with Ukraine and right now they're just taking on a bit more fuel before we head back to RAF Akrotiri in Cyprus. So it's about 25 past three and we've just landed back at RAF Akrotiri and now the crews will go into a debrief. Flight Lieutenant Mark Scott, Voyager pilot with 10 Squadron, currently on deployment in RAF Akrotiri. So we were operating about 30, 40 miles from the border with Ukraine in the northern part of Romania. Uh, the typhoons were nearby, uh, conducting their air policing from there. 
Um, we stay in the vicinity of the uh, typhoons, so as soon as they need fuel, we're easy to uh, get back to for their, for their gas. It's been a very busy two weeks since the extra typhoons and voyagers arrived here at RAF Aquateria. Just give us a sense of what it's been like. We've been flying missions most days, mixture of day and night. When we get to the operating area, there's been a lot of aircraft out there, a lot of NATO allies we've been working with, the Americans, Italians and Spanish. So it's, it's been a busy, busy couple of weeks. How does this feel so far and, and this operation and working, working alongside NATO this time? It, it feels very different um, to be in Europe on operations. Uh, we're used to uh, the last 15 years or so operating in the Middle East and now we're working with NATO but on home grounds in, in NATO countries. Uh, so that feels very different. And of course, uh, the two Typhoon jets that you were refuelling today, they were armed? They were armed, yes. As part of the posture, we're demonstrating that NATO is there in the eastern countries um, providing uh, a policing role uh, with armed aircraft, yes. How busy is everyone here at RAF Akrotiri? It's been very busy. Uh, we've got three voyages here. Um, we've got crews flying several times a day, um, multiple different uh, locations that we're operating to. So yes, yeah, it's high tempo at the moment. That was Flight Lieutenant Mark Scott talking to Sean Greszczek at RAF Akrotiri. Uh, Michael Clark, how temporary or permanent do you think this increased British military activity and presence in Eastern Europe is going to be? Will it ever roll back? Not for a very long time. I think this is a fairly permanent feature now because what happened three weeks ago now was a structural change in Europe. I mean, the Russians now pose a structural threat to European peace, the Russians under Putin. And remember that even if the war ended tomorrow and all the Russians just go home, no one will believe a word that President Putin says ever again because he lied and lied and lied in order to then promote a conquest of a foreign country, of a neighbouring country. And even if Putin falls, and of course, you know, we've been saying he might fall in the next month or two, or he might fall in the next two or three years, but he will fall. But when he falls, whoever replaces him uh, will still have to prove to the rest of us in Europe that the Russians are not a threat to the structure of the whole continent, to the peace of the continent. So this is a long-term issue because everything in Europe has changed. There is a, a sort of silver lining for Britain in this, and it, you know one looks for silver linings in these mm. cases. But you know during the Cold War, Britain's influence in Europe was always highest when the Cold War was at its most dangerous. You know one of the strong cards in our diplomatic hand is the skill of our armed forces, and so we are pitched, whether we like it or not, into Cold War Two, mm. and in that Cold War Two. Britain's influence across Europe is immeasurably higher than it was, let's say, a month ago. So it's a silver lining, but it's one that we should use because this is playing to our strengths. The question, of course, is whether we're strong enough in our strong hand and whether we need uh, to increase our defence spending and our defence capabilities considerably as a result of this. Michael, stay with us. Well, one marker of how serious the Ukraine crisis is, is what could prove to be an historic change in German thinking. Since the Second World War, Germany has deliberately kept its military spending and capability relatively low-key. Not anymore. It's injecting 100 billion euros into its defence budget. The spending spree starts with 35 of the world's most advanced fighter jets, F-35s, and that will take up just a fraction of the cash. It seems Vladimir Putin has succeeded where Donald Trump failed to persuade Europe's biggest economic power. It needs to be a big military power too. Baroness Gisela-Stewart moved to the UK from Germany in her late teens. During her 20 years as a Labour MP, she sat on the Defence, Foreign Affairs and Intelligence Committees. I spent most of my adult life 
looking at a Germany that was trying to overcome a history of having been a military power. And I think it was a Polish foreign minister who, who once said, I used to be afraid of German military activity. Now I'm worried about German military inactivity. So I think you have to see this in, in that context. That for Germany, this is a massive step. And I think it probably started when under Schroeder they, they deployed in Afghanistan, that they're actually doing missions. So I think Germany will see itself very much as part of an international order and act and cooperate with others. Uh, but its willingness to, to, to be that actor as part of a larger group, I in, welcome enormously. And how much of a difference will this huge spending boost make to Germany's military capability and what it can contribute to NATO? I think that's where we will have to see to what extent uh, the focus will be on complementarity of capacity, because NATO's strength uh, has always been one of ensuring that as a collective it can deliver. And there are very few uh, sovereign capabilities uh, within NATO without the United States in some way. For the UK, it kind of means we are still P5 and we're still a, a, a nuclear power. For Germany, it does mean coming to terms of just where its relationship is to, 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 to other nuclear powers. But the key thing is a modernization of the equipment in Germany, a but also a political commitment to use coercive powers as and when needed. And Olaf Scholz could do something which might have been more difficult to do for uh, an Angela Merkel. And Berlin's announced the purchase of fighter jets, but that's a fraction of the money. What else would you like to see it spent on? I come back to complementarity. For Germany to update a lot of its equipment, because I think they would, they would agree that uh, some of it has become outdated, it's when you do the, the training facilities and the capacity building to work with partners and ensure that we can collectively can deliver. They were right to start with F-35s to replace the tornado, but... I hope that when the, you know, you have the NATO summit, that they kind of compare notes as to who's got what and who needs updating and who needs more working together. So it's not just what the Germans do, it's what we do collectively. So broadly speaking, you, you're saying this is a positive move, you, you welcome it. How much of a difference do you think it's going to make long term? I think it will make a, a significant difference long term because... What Germany has done, uh, and it's not just the, 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 the spending, increase in spending, it has also said it's uh, putting hold on Nord Stream, and it at the same time has said it is keeping all the channels of communication open. Uh, it, that says to me that Germany has recognised it is not just an economic power, it is also has a military responsibility. It is moving away from what had been a his, historic sense of that it, it, it owed Russia the permission to unify. I think we should never forget how important that was for Germany, the unification. It did require Russian consent. There is enormous dependency still on uh, gas, oil and coal uh, for its energy. But at the end of this, Germany has started to look at itself not just as an observer but also as an active actor uh, and that I welcome but the problems the problems have not changed they're still with us 
Baroness Gisela Stewart. Uh, Michael Clark, give us some context of how Germany's military power right now sits in NATO's league table and where this kind of spending could take it. Germany's sort of combat capabilities, which should be in the top you know, one or two, uh, certainly within Europe, is more d- down in sort of eighth or ninth place because the Air Force had been run down, their army was extremely badly equipped, modernisation hadn't taken place. It was really very, very poor. And in spending, Germany was committed to making the 2% GDP target by, I think it was 2023, 2024. That's where we were before this crisis. They agreed this week that the defence budget for next year will go from 47 billion to 50 billion immediately. So Germany will meet its 2% target, I think, next year and then start building from there. But it won't be an instant hit because military power can't just be magicked up overnight. And the Germans are, are already worrying that their debt, of course, which is already high because of COVID, will double to about 200 billion euros, which puts them right up against the fiscal rules of the European Union. But it will take them in the next two or three years to the first or second slot, as it were, among the Europeans as defence providers. So a gradual, not an instant hit. How long do you think it will be before this kind of money delivers actual significant extra capability? Well, my own guess would be three to four years, because whenever you put money into a budget um, that's been uh, depleted over the years, a lot of it just goes into the black hole, first of all, um, making up for the deficiencies that have been accumulating. So a lot of this money will will not be uh, seen in new capabilities, but it will eventually. And although three or four years sounds like a long time in view of the crisis that we've got now, the fact is politically this is really important because this gives a, a, a real um, a shot in the arm to European NATO because it shows that Germany is coming back into the centre of European NATO, which is where it always should have been. So that has a political effect on everybody else. If the Germans are coming back in and they're determined to do so and it looks as if they are, then everybody else takes European NATO much more seriously. And so NATO's relevance to everybody else's politics is actually increased because of this. I think that's the real importance of it. Now, the concerns of possible contagion beyond Ukraine don't just come from NATO countries. Leaders in Bosnia-Herzegovina and Kosovo have warned President Putin may try to destabilise the Balkans region to widen his confrontation with the West. They fear Moscow will pressure Serbia to create unrest and division in the region. Despite Serbia's ambition to join the EU, it's not imposed sanctions on Russia. And while anti-Russia demonstrations have been seen across Europe... In Serbia, people have taken to the streets in support of President Putin. Una Hadari is a journalist who has spent many years covering southeastern Europe. So how real is the risk that Vladimir Putin might use the Ukraine crisis to try to also destabilise the Balkans region? Before the invasion, um, military risk was considered to be very unlikely. Russia has had a very strong influence in the region in the form of soft power you know, trying to influence the political rhetoric in a way that they find favorable or in a way that would counter the interests of the West in the region. And this was usually done through the uh, prism of offering people in the Balkans or countries in the Balkans an alternative to Western or EU integration, having in mind that many Balkan countries are still not um, EU member states. So military invasion was unlikely, but now after this is sort of gone against all uh, predictions for sort of rational um, geopolitical thinking and behavior, people are starting to worry uh, more about military incursions into territories that are close to or accessible by Russia. 
And even without Russian meddling, the invasion of Ukraine was bound to play on long-standing divisions among different groups in the region. But what's the level of risk here? Is it simply political and civil unrest, or is there a real risk of a return to conflict? Well, the current Bosnian Serb leader, Amir Radjadik, has been at the center of political strife and saber in Bosnia for the past couple of months. He is someone who will gladly play on the ethnic divisions in the country and uh, use uh, the fact that the West hasn't been able to intervene militarily or directly on the ground in Ukraine to uh, sort of bolster his actions. And, uh, you know, the current president of Serbia, uh, Aleksandar Vucic, has also uh, sort of played a game over the years where he's relied both on Western and Russian support to sort of present himself as a great uh, sort of geopolitical leader or influencer in the region. And I think a big part of his um, voter base actually are extremely pro-Russian, as we've seen through protests that have been organized in Belgrade since the beginning of the invasion. So they all have to, these people will definitely not back down from their pro-Russian stances and neither will their supporters. And this could be the cause for, for, for divisions in the future. And that political turmoil in Bosnia-Herzegovina, has the invasion of Ukraine shown any further impact on that yet? People in Bosnia always thought that if worse comes to worse, the EU, through its uh, peacekeeping forces or even NATO, would actually appear on the ground to halt um, further escalations. Now that they've seen what the risk of uh, using uh, nuclear weapons by Putin and other um, military risks that are associated with Western intervention are playing a significant role in their decision. People actually are much more afraid that um, there could be a repeat of some of the scenarios from the 1990s and that the Bosniak side in particular um, would be uh, attacked by those um, who, who operate against it. And what kind of effect has there been on Kosovo so far? With Kosovo, it's very specific because there's a northern region in the country that operates sort of as an enclave or that hasn't yet been put entirely under control by the government in Pristina. After um, uh, Russia uh, decided to get involved in the so-called protection of its, you know, uh, of the breakaway regions in, in Ukraine, people fear that one day Vucic or perhaps an even more nationalist or radical leader could uh, use uh, military means to protect this, this Serb majority region. Uh, using the same arguments that Putin used, basically. Now, we've seen very public support for Ukraine from the West to try to deter President Putin. Is there anything that countries like the UK can do for the Balkans right now to help minimise the risk of contagion from the Ukraine crisis? I'd say the single most important thing is for Western countries to stop uh, tolerating and or cooperating with leaders in the region who are nationalist, populist or far right. Um, so besides the Serbian president and the Bosnian Serb leader, the Slovenian prime minister and others have openly been pro-Russian, including parts of the Montenegrin government. I understand the position that diplomats and politicians are in. If these are elected representatives, you can't go against directly against the will of the people. But in these cases, I think it is it'll be they'll likely be the cause of all the problems and the, the divisions in the region, since they are evidently operating under the influence or benefit from um, the protection of uh, Moscow. Yeah, but when you say that they should stop tolerating these kind of people, um, what do you think they should do? Take the Serbian president for as an example. Um, Vucic's rhetoric domestically has been um, extremely pro-Russian and oftentimes EU skeptic, skeptical of the EU. 
EU countries have sort of ignored this on the international front, I think that now they can't ignore that. They should definitely openly um, criticize their um, criticize their rhetoric and uh, support local actors who are, uh, you know, asking for more transparency in their collaborations with Moscow and other illiberal um, uh, regimes. Una Hadari there. Well, let's get some final thoughts from Professor Michael Clark. Michael, if, as has been reported, Ukraine's president has conceded his country will never join NATO, is that a victory of sorts for Vladimir Putin? Well, a very small one, if that's what it is, because that's been you know, blindingly obvious for many, many years. I mean, we were saying back in 2008 when NATO was making rather whimsical statements about eventual membership for Ukraine, we were all saying, well, that would be very, very eventual because it's never been a good strategic idea for you, for NATO to extend that far eastwards. And the Ukrainians knew that. So in one sense, it's a very easy thing to give up. Much harder for Zelensky and the Ukrainians to give up the ambition to join the EU EU because that is the uh, that's the route to their greater prosperity and to their development as a as a, a globalized uh, country and a globalized society. That's a bigger one. And this time next week, will we still be talking about a stalled land invasion and relentless shelling, or do you think we will have passed a turning point? Well, wars tend to go in fits and starts. Um, I think the issue here is not so much that things will have changed so much on the ground, but um, we'll be thinking differently about the war as a whole, or possibly, because we now know that Vladimir Putin is going for broke in Ukraine. We wondered if he would just go for a little part of it, but no, he's going for broke, not just in Ukraine, but to try to remake, apparently, the whole of the post-Cold War European security order. And he can't do that. I mean, he's made a massive, massive strategic blunder. Now, will he follow the old Hitler um, uh, assumption that the way to recover from one strategic blunder is to make another one somewhere else? And so um, that's what that will be the talking point for the next couple of weeks. The battlefield will stay the same roughly, but will the war still be the same in a couple of weeks time? Michael Clark, thank you. And my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. You can stay up to date between now and then on our news website, forces.net. And you can catch up with past programmes at bfbs.com slash sit rep, where you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. Goodbye. 